Good afternoon. Welcome back to Cato's 19th annual Constitution Day. This is panel two, criminal law and accountability. I'm Clark Neely. I'm Cato's vice president for criminal justice. Before we get started, I'd like to remind everyone that you can and we encourage you to submit questions online. You can do that through Zoom, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. On Twitter, we are at hashtag Cato SCOTUS. And I'll remind you a couple of times throughout the program, um, we will save time uh, at the end, end of the event for your questions, and we look forward to answering them. Um, today, we have three wonderful panelists to discuss our topic, which is criminal law and accountability. Um, first, we have Paul Larkin, who is the John, Barbara, and Victoria Rumpole Senior Legal Research Fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies where he uh, works on criminal justice policy, drug policy, and regulatory policy. Um, if I went through all of uh, Paul's relevant CV, we would um, not have anything time to talk about anything else. So I will simply highlight that he was an assistant to the Solicitor General, where he argued 27 cases in the US Supreme Court, and also served as counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Next, we have my colleague, uh, Jay Schweikert, who is a policy analyst in the Project of Criminal Justice. Um, Jay is standing in for one of our guests uh, who was unable to make it today. Uh, we were going to have Professor Stephen Vladek from the University of Texas, which is my alma mater, here to talk about the article that he wrote uh, on the Supreme Court case, Hernandez v. Mesa. Uh, but unfortunately, as I said, Steve is unable to join us. Uh, but Jay will uh, handle that uh, stand in ably because um, it is a, uh, it touches on an issue that is near and dear to Jay's heart and uh, much of the work that he does at Cato is relevant. And last but not least, we have Dr. Nicholas Mosvik, um, who was a senior fellow at the National Constitution Center, um, a former Institute for Justice and Cato alum, uh, as am I. Uh, he is a UVA law grad, and he has his doctorate in American history from the University of Mississippi. We're going to be talking about three different Supreme Court cases today. We're going to start off with Ms. Uh, Paul Larkin talking about Kaler versus Kansas, uh, which is a question which presents the question um, of whether the U.S. Constitution uh, requires states to provide certain kinds of insanity defenses, and particularly the kind of insanity defense uh, that enables someone to escape criminal liability uh, when they know what they did, but they claim that they didn't know what they did was wrong. Jay will be talking about a case called Hernandez v. Mesa, which involved a cross-border shooting, a fatal cross-border shooting um, by an uh, agent of the federal government uh, who killed a 15-year-old Mexican national by shooting across uh, international border, that which raises all kinds of accountability questions. And then Dr. Moswick will be talking about a case that I'm sure is familiar to everybody, Ramos versus Louisiana, in which the U.S. Supreme Court finally got to the question of whether the Sixth Amendment requires jury unanimity. Paul, would you kick us off, please? Thank you, Clark. And thank you to everyone who's tuned in. And thank you, Cato. I'm honored that they invited me to speak today. The relationship between murder and madness has captivated novelists and filmmakers for decades. But the same relationship has also been the interest of criminal justice scholars and criminologists for centuries. The criminal law has drawn a distinction between offenders who are bad and those who are mad for hundreds of years. It has adopted numerous tests to try to address this sort of problem. There is the wild animal test, the total loss of understanding test, the famous McNaughton test, the product of mental illness test, irresistible impulse, and the American Law Institute test, which is really just a modern update of the old McNaughton test. Each one of them tries to separate people who are incapable because of a mental disease or defect of either knowing what they're doing or knowing what they're doing is illegal or immoral. The criminal law has always thought this is an important distinction because a parallel development occurring in the field of scienter during this period had been the limitation of liability from a strict basis to people who have acted in a way that they should have known was illegal or immoral. Kansas took a slightly different approach than most states in this regard. Kansas allows a defendant to show that due to a mental illness, he lacked the scienter element necessary to commit a crime. In the case of murder, that's premeditation and deliberation on an intent to kill. Or a person can use a mental illness to show that he should be confined, not in a penal institution, but in a mental institution. What Kansas does not allow 
is a defendant to show that a mental illness robbed him of the ability to show that what he did was immoral. In other words, the mental illness so clouded his judgment that he didn't know he was violating the moral code. The facts of Kaler versus Kansas are pretty stark in this regard. Kaler was going through a terrible personal relationship with his wife. Uh, and they had been separated and were in the process of being divorced. His daughters had decided, he thought, to side with the wife in this regard, while his son, he thought, was on his side in this regard. His uh, soon-to-be ex-wife, his estranged wife, and his children were spending the Thanksgiving weekend at uh, his wife's grandmother's home. Taking an AR-15, a rifle used by the U.S. military, he went into the house passed by his son, who, as I said, he probably thought was on his side in this dispute, and murdered his wife, his two daughters, and his wife's grandmother. The result was he had virtually no defense on the merits of the charge. He never denied that he had done the shooting. And given the circumstances, uh, which showed that he intentionally, um, methodically, and systematically walked throughout the house to find his victims, he had no defense that what he did was intentional and premeditated. His only defense was insanity, but the way that he raised an insanity defense was a doozy. Rather than actually using the Kansas law because he was not able to show that he couldn't know that what he did was immoral, he challenged this constitutionality. The problem for him is this. Perhaps the most fundamental moral proposition that has existed from the dawn of Western civilization and, and probably Eastern, Northern, Southern as well, is that the uh, intentional premeditated killing of an innocent party is immoral. In essence, what Kaler was asking the Kansas courts and then later the Supreme Court to do was say that Kansas was constitutionally prohibited from assuming uh, irrebuttably, that anyone who intentionally murders an innocent person knows that what he or she is doing is immoral. When the case got to the Supreme Court, he relied heavily on the history of how the law treated the insanity defense, saying that historically, the criminal law had always exculpated someone who, due to a mental disease or defect, didn't know that what he or she was doing was immoral. And the uh, principle was so deeply embedded in Anglo-American law that it had to be adopted as a constitutional rule. By a 6-3 vote, the Supreme Court rejected that argument in an opinion by Justice Kagan. She started out by saying that he was wrong in claiming that his mental illness uh, was of no use to him in defending against the charges. She said that what Kansas allowed was a defendant to show that mental illness robbed him of the scienter necessary for the crime or that he should be confined in a mental institution rather than uh, in a penal institution, or in this case, uh, subject to capital punishment. The fact that he could make those uh, defenses was all that the due process clause required, as unable as he might have been given the facts to be successful on them. But Justice Kagan went on further. She deeply analyzed the history of Anglo-American treatment of insanity and rejected the argument that regardless of what a state does, the Constitution gives a defendant the right to show that because of mental disease or defect, he was incapable of understanding the immorality of his own conduct. As the result, she rejected his argument, and the decision in Kayla versus Kansas is one of a series of cases in which the Supreme Court has said the Constitution does not adopt like the speed of light, a rule of insanity that applies everywhere, anytime, and for all time. Now, the significance of the Kaler case is, in part, uh, what the Supreme Court did not do. Kaler was one of a small number of cases in which the Supreme Court, over the course of the uh, last 70 years, has addressed the question of whether the Constitution adopts an insanity defense, and if it does, requires that states and the federal government use a particular standard to separate bad defendants from mad ones. In earlier cases, uh, the question had been whether there is an irresistible impulse defense or whether alcoholism is a defense. Those were in Leland versus Oregon and Powell versus Texas, respectively. And then, of course, in Clark versus Arizona, you had essentially the mirror image of this, which is a defendant who claimed that he was entitled to show 
that he couldn't keep himself from knowing that what he was doing is what he actually wound up doing, uh, even though he knew it was immoral. Uh, in each case, the Supreme Court has said that there is no one test that has been so accepted by Anglo-American legal history that it becomes the exclusive or at least a compulsory test for the federal and state governments to use. What is also potentially significant, however, is the methodology the court used in coming to this conclusion. The court relied almost exclusively on how history had treated this particular type of claim. History was more than uh, just uh, a factor to consider, and it, and it did more than where just a mayo jean in this case. It was virtually the entirety of her analysis. Well, that is significant in potentially two other areas for the criminal law. One is strict liability, and one is vicarious liability. The common law started out with a strict liability basis, but then greatly became uh, overcome by the distinction between people who know what they're doing is a crime and people who are engaged in activity that might be negligent. Uh, and for the longest period of time, only those who knowingly engage in conduct that is a, a crime or that is dangerous or that is harmful could be held criminally liable. During the mid of the 19th century, however, we started seeing states adopt a form of strict liability again simply in the context originally of various types of business-related or health and safety-related crime, but it has gradually expanded to the point where it can be used by states and the federal government in a variety of circumstances where there is even imprisonment or worse, potentially, as the penalty. Plus, in uh, cases involving prosecutions under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, the Supreme Court has upheld the use of vicarious liability by holding a president potentially liable for criminal case where he had no knowledge whatsoever of what was happening at a particular plant. The bottom line is this, the Supreme Court has upheld the constitutionality of strict and vicarious liability, but it is a very ahistorical type of decision. In a handful of cases decided since the early 1920s, the Supreme Court has allowed Congress and the states to use this theory. But if Kaler indicates that the dispositive criteria in deciding whether this is constitutional is the history of this use, then I think we'll likely see that people use that history to try to challenge these prosecutions in the future. The bottom line is this, Kaler probably and for all times closes the door to the potential claim that there is a constitutional basis for an insanity defense. It is really now something subject to legislative judgment. But we will find out probably over the course of the next decade or so whether the Kaler analysis is a one-off or whether it uh, can be applied in other circumstances. Strict and respondeat superior liability are two where we will see this raised in the future. What happens, we will have to only wait and see. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Wonderful presentation, uh, very informative, and we'll come back. Uh, with questions and do a little bit of crosstalk among the panel before we take the audience's questions, which again, we invite you to submit um, either through Zoom, Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter, where our hashtag is hashtag Cato SCOTUS. Um, Jay, let's talk about Hernandez v. Mesa. In that case, U.S. Border Patrol agent shot a 15-year-old Mexican boy in the face across an international border um, and killed him. That boy's family filed a wrongful death suit um, against the agent, um, and they're never going to get their day in court. Why? Why not? So the underlying question in Hernandez v. Mesa is whether uh, the parents of uh, this boy who was shot and killed by a border agent um, could bring a Bivens suit against the federal officer. Um, to provide just a little bit of background here, uh, Bivens uh, is a 1971 Supreme Court case that said there was sort of inherent in the Constitution, a right to bring a damages claim against a federal officer who violated someone, who, who was alleged to have violated someone's Fourth Amendment rights through effecting an illegal search. Now, with regard to state and local officials, uh, Congress passed a statute in 1871 that we generally call Section 1983 that explicitly creates a federal cause of action against state and local officials that violate someone's constitutional rights. The Congress has never passed such a statute with regard to federal officers. Um, nevertheless, in Bivens, the court said, 
there's sort of an, an inherent right to bring a damages claim against a federal officer. And the court extended that doctrine to a couple other contexts, one involving a Fifth Amendment due process claim against a government official alleged to have engaged in uh, unlawful discrimination, and an Eighth Amendment claim in the prison context. But since then, the Supreme Court has been very reluctant to extend Bivens to new contexts. And that's where this that's where we come to in this case, where the question is, should uh, the fa- a, a foreign national be able to bring a Bivens suit against a border official for a cross-border shooting? And in a 5-4 decision, uh, with the so-called conservatives in the majority and the liberals uh, dissenting, uh, the Supreme Court held that there is not that, that they will not recognize a Bivens remedy in this context. Um, the way that the majority, which was written by Justice Alito, goes about analyzing this is they they start by pretty candidly acknowledging that Bivens was quote the product of an era when the court routinely inferred causes of action that were not explicit in the text of the provision that was allegedly violated. So the majority is already sort of saying that. You know, look, Bivens was a product of a different time when, when ba- what we would now consider basic principles of textualism weren't as routinely followed by uh, the courts. Um, so Alito says there's a two-step inquiry for new Bivens claims. First, is this a new context? And second, if so, are there any special factors that counsel against uh, the counsel hesitation for extending Bivens? Uh, and he answers yes to both of these questions. Alito says. Um, even though the original Bivens case did involve a Fourth Amendment claim, this is an entirely different factual context because this is a cross-border shooting, uh, which is very different from a you know sort of run-of-the-mill uh, unlawful search, a domestic unlawful search by a federal officer. And he then says that there are several factors counseling hesitation. Uh, the first being the potential effect on foreign relations. Um, this shooting, what became an international incident, and there was a disagreement between the United States and Mexico over how to proceed. Um, the, the DOJ did investigate the officer who committed this shooting, but declined to bring any charges or take any other action against him, whereas Mexico wanted him extradited to be tried for murder in Mexico. Um, so given this diplomatic tension, Justice Alito says, look, we shouldn't get involved here. We shouldn't try to arbitrate this dispute that will sort of just disturb the diplomatic relations here. Uh, And he also raises a national security interest that given uh, illegal cross-border traffic, uh, border agents, um, the conduct of border agents has a strong connection to national security. And finally, he looks at a number of other federal statutes, including Section 1983, which generally do not permit foreign nationals to bring claims, damages claims against federal officers. And so he says, you know, look, Congress knows how to do this if they want to, so we shouldn't extend a, a remedy here. Uh, Justice Thomas, uh, joined by Justice Gorsuch, concurred uh, and basically said Bivens should be reconsidered altogether, uh, that the methodology producing it was incorrect, and it's just it's already been quite limited, and it's time to get rid of it. Uh, and then Justice Ginsburg, uh, joined by Breyer, uh, Sotomayor, and Kagan, dissented, um, arguing first that this was basically the same context as uh, Bivens, that this was uh, an alleged illegal seizure by a federal officer, um, but that even if it was a new context, it doesn't raise the same uh, foreign relations concerns because this wasn't a foreign a, a foreign relations policy at stake. This was simply a rogue officer uh, acting contrary to federal law. Um, so that's where the Supreme Court ends up on this and says there's no Bivens remedy. And I think that if you if you look at this through a very narrow lens uh, and and just think about this in, purely in terms of Bivens, it probably seems like a fairly straightforward maybe not especially important case. Um, because, you know, Bivens is probably is on some shaky ground uh, under, you know, the sort of principles of textualism and originalism that have a lot of pull with uh, many of the justices on the court now. And the court has already been limiting this doctrine for several years. And this, in some sense, is a recognition that Bivens isn't going to go any further than it currently does. And if there, you know, if you want, if Congress wants there to be um, damages cause of action against federal officers, they need to pass a statute doing so. But I think what makes this case a little bit more complicated and interesting is when you you, uh, put it in the context of several other accountability-related doctrines uh, that the Supreme Court has created and enforced over the years, which really add up to a, the government always wins when it comes to accountability. And I would say the most important doctrines there are qualified immunity, 
absolute prosecutorial immunity and the Monell doctrine, which uh, limits the ability of individuals to sue um, municipalities uh, for constitutional violations. And what I think is interesting here is that the, if you look at uh, the majority opinion and the concurrence in Hernandez v. Mesa, it seems like a very straightforward textualist, we're not gonna create new causes of action, we can't engage in policymaking, we just have to enforce the law as it is. But that attitude doesn't govern any of these other accountability-related doctrines. Um, as I've written about and argued extensively elsewhere, uh, qualified immunity, which makes it extraordinarily difficult to bring causes of action against state and local officials, is not something that is provided for in the text of Section 1983, uh, nor is justified by the history of suits against uh, government officials. Um, just so with absolute prosecutorial immunity, which makes it impossible to sue prosecutors for constitutional violations. Again, not something that's textually or historically supported, but was essentially invented by the Supreme Court given what they viewed as policy concerns with individuals suing prosecutors. And then in the, uh, the Monell context, um, there, was, there certainly is a very well-established rule in the common law of respondeat superior, which means that generally employers are liable for torts committed by their employees in the course of, uh, in the course of their uh, work. And yet the Supreme Court rejected uh, the application of that doctrine to Section 1983 suits and said, municipalities are not liable under a respondeat superior theory, but rather you have to show that there was uh, an official policy or practice that led to a violation. So, so I, what I think this indicates is that Textualism and originalism and very straight, you know, the, the sort of, uh, you know, cross your heart and well, we're only going to, you know, apply the law principles don't get applied even handedly, uh, even by the courts, you know, so-called conservatives when it comes to the question of accountability. Now, to be fair, Justice Thomas uh, uh, was the, did dissent um, from the Supreme Court's recent denial of cert for questions raising uh, for in a case raising the question of whether qualified immunity should be reconsidered. And he was very clear that look, this doctrine does not have a statutory or historical basis, so we should reconsider it. But none of the other justices joined him, not even Justice Gorsuch, who joins Thomas in his concurrence in this case, saying that Bivens should be reconsidered. So I think that there's, there's a bit of a double standard going on in terms of when and how these you know, seemingly objective judicial doctrines get applied. And it always seems to line up against individuals seeking to vindicate their constitutional rights. And then finally, I would just note one other thing lurking in the background of this case, and this is an issue that um, Professor Vladek uh, discusses in more detail in his article, is the idea that the, the historical remedy for constitutional violations committed by federal officers was state tort law. So if an officer committed an unconstitutional search or seizure, they could be sued for a trespass violation or for battery. Um, that's the main way that individuals vindicated their constitutional rights um, in the founding era. And in a 1988 decision, uh, the Supreme Court said, yes, those remedies are still available uh, against federal officers. But Congress responded by passing an act that we generally call the Westfall Act, named after that Supreme Court case, that's, that makes the Federal Tort Claims Act essentially the exclusive remedy against federal officers uh, alleged to have committed constitutional violations. And of course, there are lots of other limitations in the Federal Tort Claims Act that makes it difficult to hold officers accountable. Um, and Professor Vladek develops an argument that this actually, this act raises significant due process concerns itself, that this may be unconstitutional by, in many circumstances, depriving individuals of any ability to vindicate their rights unless they can fit their claim into a federal tort claims act. Um, so all of these doctrines work together to make accountability for government officials extraordinarily difficult to achieve. Uh, and if you, you know, if you, if you if look at this case on its own, it may seem pretty straightforward and the court may seem to be applying a pretty straightforward textualist historical analysis, but those same doctrines don't get applied in other contexts. And so I think it's worth, you know, thinking about how seriously the court is really taking that uh, when it always seems to line up against individuals seeking to vindicate their constitutional rights. Thanks, Jay. Well, it's a case involving troubling facts, troubling result, troubling rationale in a troubling context. I'm not sure what's worse than a hat trick of injustice. I guess maybe it's a grand slam of injustice. Um, we'll come back to that in the, um, 
in the uh, crosstalk and the Q&A, I'm sure. I want to remind our audience that we um, invite you. In fact, we um, eagerly invite you to submit your questions online through Zoom, Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter, where our hashtag is CatoScotus. And uh, last but not least, Dr. Nicholas Mostic has a surprise in store for us about the Ramos versus Louisiana case. This is a case involving the question of whether the Constitution requires jury unanimity um, from state criminal juries, um, a question that the Supreme Court originally answered in the negative. Uh, I would say there was widespread con uh, a consensus that that was uh, incorrect. And almost everybody that I've read um, commenting on the Ramos case acts as if the underlying issue itself was a no-brainer. The only question was whether precedent and respect for stare decisis um, militated in favor of not overruling the Apodaca precedent. Uh, Dr. Mostic has a completely different take for us, uh, and I'm very eager to hear him describe it. Please take it away. Well, uh, thank you, Clark, for that introduction, and uh, thank you to the Cato Institute for inviting me to participate, and uh, especially to Trevor Burris, my former co-legal associate at Cato, who's now the editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Um, I'm honored to be part of this uh, panel. And uh, yes, as uh, Clark noted, um, I believe our article is a bit of a surprise. So myself and my co-author, Mitch Mosvik, um, we approached the Ramos case, I think like most people did by coming in with both a normative assumption, but also a constitutional interpretation assumption that uh, the lead opinion was accurate in saying that the Sixth Amendment um, through the uh, text that says uh, right to an impartial jury uh, in court, um, included uh, the right to a unanimous jury verdict and that this applied to the states through the 14th Amendment. Uh, so what, did, what surprise do we have in store? What surprised us? I think what surprised us was the history is we got into it. Uh, so before I get to that, I think it's worth just reviewing the facts of the Ramos case itself. So I said the basic holding of the majority opinion, which, um, as I noted, is a lead opinion. That's because it's split. But the split is Clark, I think, referred to is mostly about stare decisis as opposed to whether or not uh, unanimity is required under the Sixth Amendment. Uh, in any case, this case came out of uh, Louisiana. And so before the Ramos case, there's only two states in the United States that still had rules permitting supermajoritarian or non-unanimous jury verdicts, which are 10 to 2 verdicts. And that was Louisiana and Oregon. Uh, this case came um, from a 2014 murder in Louisiana. Uh, Mr. Ramos was identified by the nephew of the victim. There is DNA evidence that was found connecting him to the murder, and he was uh, charged and indicted by a grand jury. And then uh, the jury, uh, by a 10 to 2 verdict, found that he was guilty of murder, and he was sentenced to lifetime imprisonment without possibility of parole. He appealed that decision on multiple bases, but one of those, of course, was that the verdict itself was unconstitutional because it was not a unanimous verdict. And that takes us to Ramos. So I wanna say from the outset that our main goal here was not necessarily to criticize uh, Justice Gorsuch's um, lead opinion or to say that he was mostly wrong. I think we actually think that a lot of what the court says is accurate. Um, but instead, what we wanted to do is to highlight that given that uh, Justice Gorsuch um, took an original public meaning originalism approach to this case, he says that in the case, um, that we think that there's a lot of history that was left out of this discussion. And as Clark says, that is kind of the way, the way that Gorsuch comes into this opinion is a way I think a lot of people did, which is this assumption that um, this was the most clear conclusion available. So we want, uh, we want to do a couple things. So the first was to compare this to the Heller opinion. So that's Heller versus District of Columbia. That's Justice Scalia's 2008 opinion, um, finding that the Second Amendment protects the right of individual uh, 
of individuals to own handguns within the home. And we believe that uh, the Ramos opinion is very similar to the Heller opinion in a number of ways. Um, and you might think of that as kind of three different sections that they look at in order to answer the question that they're looking at. That's this pre-ratification history, which a lot of that is the uh, English common law and particularly Blackstone's commentaries amongst others that are used as sources to establish what is a pre-constitutional ancient right of English liberty. Uh, the second is to look at ratification itself. And this particularly means the debates over uh, the text in the Bill of, Bill of Rights, including textual changes that were made. And then lastly is post-adoption treatises. Um, this idea that uh, treatises after the ratification of the Constitution confirmed a certain interpretation of those amendments, right? So that's the basic comparison to Heller. Uh, but rather than spend a lot of time looking at that opinion, the focus we wanted to have was on um, three points about the history that is not really talked about uh, by any of the opinions. There's five opinions in Ramos, but really most of the briefs ignored a lot of this as well. Uh, the first piece of history is the experimentations in colonial America before the ratification period. And a lot of this history comes in the 17th century. If you look at this period of time in which a lot of the colonies were founded, um, it's a time of wide diverse experimentation in what jury trials look like. And in fact, that include, included experiments in places like Massachusetts, which was essentially a theocracy at the time, is was the colony of New Haven, which would later merge to become uh, the colony of Connecticut. And both of them for a period of time did not have jury trials. They simply abolished them. Um, other colonies experimented with non-majoritarian verdicts. One of them is the state I'm in now, that's Pennsylvania, which came out of the Delaware colony, which um, eventually split into two colonies, as well as New Jersey, which eventually split into New York and New Jersey. So there was experimentation there. And then there was in the Carolinas as well. And uh, what's amazing is that the original 1669 Carolina Constitution was written by John Locke, the great um, classical liberal theorist who may have been the most important influence upon the founders. Um, I say that only because some scholars believe that, of course, is a source of dispute. But in any case, Locke is a important, venerated figure. And when Locke wrote a constitution, this is the only one that he drafted, um, rather than the rule of unanimity, he actually followed the rule of a supermajoritarian super verdict in criminal jury trials. So that's one part, right? That's the diversity of experiments um, in the uh, early American period. The second point is about the history of procedure. And I think our big point here is that if you look at 18th century and even 19th century trials and uh, their characteristics and conditions, what they actually looked like, mm. they look very different from how they look in the 21st century. And as a historic point, this is just about bringing context back to back to this discussion. So if you, in other words, if you remove just unanimity from all these other conditions of a jury trial in 1791, you lose some perspective. And I think the most important point is that in this period of time, judges had um, a awful lot of control over juries. Um, one of the ways that they had control is that criminal defense lawyers were often not even president court. And in fact, weren't really statutorily guaranteed until 1836 in England. And judges could do many things in order to force the hand of the jury. They could force juries to re-deliberate. Um, they could terminate a jury early if they believed that they were going to find a verdict that the judge disagreed with or did not like. And um, they could also coerce a jury, which means that if there were a couple holdouts that were preventing unanimous jury verdict, they could withhold food, shelter, light, all sorts of things from juries in order to force them to come to a decision. 
And this is something that started at the very beginning in the 14th century when we see the arrival of unanimous jury verdicts, but it continued well into the 19th century, even in the United States. Um, there's a New York uh, Supreme Court decision from 1898 that at length testifies to this throughout the United States still being a problem. Um, so that's the procedural history. And then the final point is one of judicial critics and scholars, right? So I mentioned these post-adoption treaties um, that are used in the Ramos opinion. And I think what we found was, was two things. One is that some of those treatises that are cited um, actually are the source of some criticism, both uh, normative criticism and at times uh, other criticism that possibly the rules should be done away with, which includes um, John Norton Pomeroy, for instance, uh, his treatise. Uh, the others include um, uh, even uh, critics like Jeremy Bentham, uh, Chancellor James Kent of New York, and I think most prominently um, in our research, um, Francis Lieber. So Francis Lieber is most well-known, the German-American jurist for writing the Lieber Code during the American Civil War, which is really the first modern uh, set of uh, law of war in America that really set the boundaries for how the war should be conducted. And in 1867, Lieber sent a letter to the New York Constitutional Convention. And in that letter, he proposed that they adopt non-unanimous uh, non supermajoritarian verdicts in both civil and criminal contexts. I think what's amazing about Lieber's letter is that he does mention the Constitution, but he doesn't mention the Sixth Amendment at all. And this is something that you find common in a lot of these treatises and both critics and supporters of unanimity. What Lieber does talk about is double jeopardy. And his point was that there could be a double jeopardy problem because there's so many hung juries that were the result of unanimity uh, being a rule. And the problem with hung juries is it suggested that there were jurors who had doubt about the uh, criminal guilt of the defendant. And that as a result of the retrial, the defendant was now facing uh, jeopardy to their lives more than once. But the real point of that criticism, I think, was that Lieber felt that the ideal of a unanimity could not be met. And when he said that, he actually reflected a lot of these, these writers, even those who's ended up supporting unanimity, is part of the criticism in that this idea of 12 free conscious individuals, like 12 angry men, coming to a consensus um, was not in accordance with the full and greater history of the rule in of jury trials more generally. Great. Well, thanks, Nicholas. And thanks to all three of you for um, your fascinating um, explanations of, of some um, complicated, in some cases, troubling cases. I'm going to exercise the moderator's privilege of asking one question of each of you. I'm going to go in reverse order since uh, Nicholas's commentary is kind of most fresh in our mind. Um, I also want to thank the audience. We've been getting some excellent questions, and we'll get to those in just a moment. Uh, but I will remind you, if you're just joining us, that uh, we invite you to submit questions through Zoom, Facebook, YouTube, uh, and Twitter, where our hashtag is CatoScotus. Uh, so, Nicholas, let me ask you this question. Um, how issue-specific is your analysis? And let me provide a framework. There are other attributes, uh, or there, there, it is considered that there are other attributes um, of a Sixth Amendment compliant jury. One of them would be numerosity. The Supreme Court has said that there's a certain number of jurors you cannot have fewer than. You could not have um, a valid verdict from a four-person jury. That is just too few. Um, I would argue that perhaps deliberativeness is a potentially a Sixth Amendment requirement um, of, of a jury. In other words, a jury that delivers a verdict um, after being forbidden and prevented from deliberating among themselves, that, that, that verdict might be invalid. Um, and then finally, um, does your analysis suggest that perhaps a verdict from um, a bare majority, that if a state just wanted to have, let's say, an 11-member jury and six votes to, to, for guilt are sufficient, um, could, would that, in your view, be consistent with the history that you've examined? So um, take as much or as little of that as you want, but um, I'd love to hear your views. 
Uh, yeah, so I'll go ahead and start with the last point uh, since I'll go in the same reverse order that you did since that's easiest. And I'll, I'll say that there are not many critics um, or those who discuss unanimity who support uh, a 7-5 majority verdict. Um, I may have seen it once or twice, but generally speaking, when commentators are talking about supporting non-unanimous jury verdicts, they're either talking about nine out of 12 or 10 out of 12. And I've even seen 11 out of 12. I think President Rutherford B. Hayes, he gave a speech in 1889 supporting a change to the rule. I think Hayes actually supported 11 out of 12. Just saying even one uh, person dissenting, that, that would be acceptable. So I think maybe the point there would be there there's room for debate. There's uncertainty there. And I think that's part of what I'm getting at. And I think the background argument is, is this ability of states under federalism to have room to experiment with their criminal procedure, at least some room, right? I think typically we see this in, in a lot of how we understand federalism, that there are limits, but our, our ability to precisely draw those is, is hard. Um, but I don't think that there's as much evidence to say people advocated for bare majorities. Um, I don't think you see a lot of that. Um, deliberativeness, I don't know how much I saw that really come up. So I don't want to comment on something that I didn't really see a lot of uh, evidence for. Uh, the 12 jurors, that definitely is something that you see uh, come up in connection with discussing this rule and whether or not um, it is required. Um, if you look at uh, Williams versus United States, for instance, which is the Justice White opinion before Apodica in 1970, um, one of his arguments is that that and unanimity are both part of these, these common law rules at the time of the founding that he didn't think were necessarily constitutionalized is fundamental aspect of the trial by jury. So. I th Again, you, you do see a connection between the two. I think that, uh, again, there's this, I think there's this concept in federalism, right, that some of these critics are arguing for, which is that there should be an ability to some extent to experiment. But there's a limit, right? And I don't know if we'd say that's obvious or not, but you couldn't just have forgers, right? You couldn't have no deliberation. Um, so... There's a bare, in other words, it seems like there's a de minimis expectation that's almost assumed by everybody in the discussion. So what they're really getting at is sort of these, these tighter margins, right, about whether or not nine or 10 is sufficient, because they're, I think, essentially assuming it's a jury of 12. Because everyone also recognizes, if you read the treatises, that the 12 is a magic number. We don't really know exactly where it came from. It probably came in 11... 1166 out of Henry's Aziz's. It may have came later, but it largely is a probably a historic accident. And so if we follow it, I think, at least according to the treatise writers, it's because we think it's a good number as much as anything else. And that is partially part of, part of the criticism too, is whether or not uh, unanimity itself is just a historic accident. Being treated is this ancient right that has always been there, if that makes sense. Does and thanks a lot for that um, very fascinating uh, answer. So Jay, I was going to uh, <clears throat> I was going to ask you a question out of my own head, but someone beat me to it from Twitter, and I'm going to read it verbatim because I think it's so beautifully phrased. Uh, the question from Twitter: um, Can you please explain the doctrine of qualified immunity and why the Supreme Court has yet to abolish qualified immunity despite the increasing public outcry about the lack of accountability for police misconduct? Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Jay is actually heading up uh, Cato's campaign to eliminate qualified immunity. Um, and that was an issue earlier on in the Hernandez v. Mesa case. And in fact, the case went to the Supreme Court before the case that Jay discussed, um, which was the second trip to the Supreme Court. And the first time it went up, it involved qualified immunity. So Jay, there's the stage. There's the um, not breaking slow ball right over the middle of the plate. Feel free to take it into the upper deck. Sure. Uh, so qualified immunity is a judicial doctrine uh, that the Supreme Court invented uh, in the 1960s and then kind of crystallized in the 1980s. Um, that uh, in theory is, is an interpretation of 
uh, the federal statute that I mentioned in my opening remarks, Section 1983, which creates uh, a cause of action against state and local officials who violate someone's constitutional rights. And that statute doesn't say anything about any immunities, but the Supreme Court has interpreted or uh, that statute to uh, basically say that it is not enough for a civil rights plaintiff to show that their rights were violated. They have to show that the defendant violated clearly established law. And that phrase clearly established law is really the key to understanding qualified immunity. Uh, because although it might sound reasonable enough in the abstract, the way it is practically applied is that uh, before an individual can bring, uh, can get you know, redressed for a constitutional violation, they essentially have to find a prior case already decided in their jurisdiction where someone, else, someone else's rights were violated in basically the same way. In other words, they have to find a case with functionally identical facts. Um, so what this means is that uh, civil rights plaintiffs are routinely uh, denied justice because even though their rights were violated, there doesn't happen to be a prior case where someone's rights were violated in quite the same way. Um, and the reason I think that this is important to consider along with uh, Hernandez is that, so as a doctrinal matter, qualified immunity applies both to section 1983 suits, i.e. Suits brought, suits brought under the statute against state and local officials, as well as against federal officials in Bivens cases. And what is actually kind of bizarre is that the, the case that created the clearly established law standard, Harlow versus Fitzgerald in 1982, and which really created the modern doctrine as we know it, was a Bivens case. And yet at the very end of the opinion, the Supreme Court kind of drops this footnote and says, oh, you know, and of course the same standards will apply to section 1983 suits. So when the, when the court made up this doctrine, they clearly weren't even trying to interpret the statute. Um, they were just making policy decisions. And whereas, you know, given that Bivens is kind of a common law doctrine on, it, on its own, maybe it's a little bit more sensible to have this kind of common law defense. Um, but I think, you know, what's important to keep in mind is that this, you know, when the Supreme Court is limiting the scope of Bivens, it is acting in a very textualist historical way, or at least trying to. But then when the Supreme Court is extending qualified immunity, it's ignoring all of that. Now, as to why the Supreme Court hasn't fixed it, you know, I don't have a definite answer for you. Uh, I think we, you know, tried to give them a good opportunity to do that at the end of this last term, but only Justice Thomas seemed interested. Part of the explanation may be that Congress has recently started taking up this question uh, and been discussing a federal legislation that would eliminate or modify qualified immunity, um, but nothing has come of that yet. Um, but it's it's hard to say, and I think that the you know Supreme Court you know warrants criticism for its what I would consider half-hearted the government always wins approach to textualism when it comes to these sets of accountability doctrines. Thanks, Jay. And Paul, I've been dying to ask you this question, um, and um, I'm going to ask you to assume that your yellow light is on. So maybe take a couple of like two minutes if you can do it in a couple of minutes. Um, you know, you you very articulately um, and persuasively suggested, I think, that um, the facts in Kaler almost could not have been less sympathetic. But let me change the facts somewhat and ask you to comment on on a what if it had come up in a different context. <laughs> Imagine uh, someone grew up as a feral child. Literally, they were discovered in the wild, maybe at the age of 17 or 18. And um, uh, at some point after their 18th birthday, so there's no um, uh, you know, infancy defense here. Um, there's an incident where someone, they're out with friends, someone grabs one of their French fries when they're having lunch at McDonald's. And the formerly feral child person reacts with extraordinary violence and um, seriously injures the person who just playfully grabbed the French fry. And the explanation for that is that in the circumstances under which that person grew up, you, you, you must never allow somebody to take even a morsel of food from you um, or you know, you'll effectively never get to eat again uh, and you'll be at the mercy of, of the most powerful people in your, in your tribe or whatever. Um, that's an example where somebody really doesn't get that what they did was wrong, or at least there'd be a very persuasive argument for that. Um, would that, might that have changed, if that had been the case, might that have changed the outcome in Kaler? And if not, um, you've suggested, I think, that maybe the proper recourse to prevent either the application of any punishment or at least a severe punishment under circumstances as sympathetic as the one I've just described might be the Eighth Amendment. Would you care to um, weigh in on this much more sympathetic fact pattern that I've given you? 
Certainly, and, and I will try to be concise. Um, first, in the case of the feral child, uh, there's no mental illness involved. So there can't be uh, a sanity defense in the normal understanding of it. Uh, what you would have to do in effect is uh, raise something akin to a cultural defense, if you will. Um, and then you run in headlong into the problem of distinguishing that case from honor killings and mm. the like. Mm. Um, the problem uh, with insanity has always been that a person because of mental disease or defect is incapable of doing anything else. This is a person you've mentioned who is not incapable of doing anything else. The person just hasn't been taught what the rules of the road are. Um, now, that may be a problem for one reason or another uh, with the way the person was raised. But once the person moves out of that environment and is into the environment with the rest of us, society is entitled to say, uh, you no longer were incapable of conforming your conduct to the requirements of the law. You just either weren't told what they are or were not permitted to do so. Now, if what you're saying is this is a, a classic example of a strict liability type of crime because the person is doing something for which he or she had no uh, understanding of what the circumstances are, you have to raise it in that context. You would have to persuade the Supreme Court to walk back from its jurisprudence in this regard. Maybe you could, but you would have to do it that way and do it in a way that distinguishes you know, the honor killing phenomenon, because there is under American law, no cultural defense like this available. Secondly, as to the Eighth Amendment, the problem with using the Eighth Amendment is, is in the very text of it. The Eighth Amendment talks about punishments, not the definition of crimes. The question is really more uh, whether the punishment imposed on that person is cruel and unusual not uh, whether the crime uh, definition is cruel and unusual as applied to that person. Now, I've argued that although the Supreme Court has upheld the constitutionality of convicting someone of a strict liability crime, it has never confronted the issue whether that person can be imprisoned, mm. and if so, for how much. So maybe the uh, best example would be someone who is uh, convicted of that offense you mentioned and sentenced either to a very long term of imprisonment or sentenced only to a fine. The Eighth Amendment might not prohibit somebody from being fined in that regard because it certainly wouldn't prohibit a tort action from going forward. And all we're talking about is the name of the plaintiff. It's the state rather than John Doe. Uh, whereas maybe there's a different circumstance if that person were given a sentence of life imprisonment. I doubt it. Uh, but nonetheless, it does raise that sort of problem. And it only the punishment, however, would be relevant under the Eighth Amendment. Thanks so much, Paul. I appreciate that, that response. All right, we've got seven minutes left, and we're going to do a little bit of a rapid fire here. Um, Jeff Walden asks a question that I myself wondered when I read Justice Thomas's opinion in the Ramos case, um, and maybe Nicholas can enlighten us. Um, why did Justice Thomas, or why do you think Justice Thomas um, based his decision on the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment uh, when the 14th Amendment also prohibits the states from depriving anybody of due process? And it would seem that the procedure by which um, a, a state tries you for a crime and convicts you of a crime, uh, whether or not a jury has to be unanimous, would seem to fall under the, the rubric of due process. Why go mine the Privileges or Immunities Clause instead? Yeah, I think that's a great question because uh, it's a reminder that a lot of the early cases in the Supreme Court that commented on unanimity were Fifth Amendment cases uh, towards the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century, um, both from states and territories. Um, so I think that's that's actually it's a good question because I my sense is that what Justice Thomas was mostly doing is continuing what he started in McDonald which is a desire to move on from incorporation under the due process clause and shift towards incorporation under the privileges or immunities clause. Um, so I think it's just simply, I view it as being more linked to a broader project that Justice Thomas has, um, but I think it's a smart question and I'm not sure how well Justice Thomas actually answers it in his concurrence. Thanks a lot. Um, Jay, I'm going to warn you in advance that uh, you might uh, take issue with um, the, um, the premise of Chip Parker's question, but I'm going to read it verbatim and, and, and uh, let you take a crack at it. 
Chip asks, does the relative rarity of qualified immunity make it less likely for the Supreme Court to consider it a procedural mess that's even worth cleaning up? Yeah, I mean, I'm a little unsure what relative rarity is supposed to mean in that context. I mean, it is certainly the case that, you know, in the majority of Section 1983 suits, uh, qualified immunity doesn't come up. Um, this is something that Joanna Schwartz has uh, looked at in quite a bit of detail when she showed that qualified immunity was actually only raised in about a third of the uh, third of the cases where it could in principle be raised by uh, law enforcement defendants. But that doesn't indicate that the doctrine isn't having a powerful effect. Um, the, the, the conclusion that Joanna Schwartz draws from that result is that it, for, in, for the uh, genuinely non-meritorious lawsuits, and of course there are many non-meritorious lawsuits, other tools of civil procedure are sufficient to dismiss them. Uh, but when qualified immunity is raised, it is an incredibly powerful defense. Uh, and our research indicates, uh, this is sort of a synthesis of scholarship by uh, Chris Walker and Aaron Nielsen um, and a recent Reuters investigation, that when qualified immunity is raised, courts grant it well over half the time. Um, so it, I don't consider it rare because it is playing a powerful role in exactly those cases where there is a plausible constitutional violation, but it's coming up in a somewhat new factual context. That is exactly the set of cases where you want courts deciding uh, these merits questions to make clear what the scope of constitutional rights are. Um, but when courts apply qualified immunity, um, not only does that person get denied compensation, but courts don't even actually have to address the merits question. They can simply dismiss because there's no clearly established law, which therefore doesn't create more clearly established law. Um, so I don't think the Supreme, and I don't think the Supreme Court views this as rare. I think the Supreme Court, at least in its recent opinions over the last decade or so, uh, sees qualified immunity as a very important and active doctrine. They have been, they have aggressively reversed lower courts that deny immunity to government officials because they wanted to send a very clear message that courts should think twice before ever denying immunity. Um, so, you know, whether which way that cuts in terms of whether it should be reconsidered, you know, depends on your underlying views about qualified immunity. But I don't think the doctrine is a rare one or one that has little effect. Thanks. Hey, Paul. Um, Jack Brown asks whether the hypothetical involving the feral child who didn't know the rules of the road um, raises any implications about the old legal maxim that ignorance of the law uh, is no excuse for a crime of which you've been accused. Um, part of the historical justification for that maxim um, was the assumption that people could and did know the law. But of course, that maxim arose at a time where there really weren't very many laws on the books. They tended to relate to things that were very obviously morally wrong, like murder, uh, arson, and things of that nature. Um, have we maybe entered an era where the, the old legal maxim of ignorance of the law is no excuse, is more and more difficult uh, to sort of justify or reconcile with our constantly expanding criminal code? Yes. In fact, uh, I have written about this in a variety of different articles. The, uh, the proposition that everyone is presumed to know the law is actually not remotely uh, empirically justifiable. No one could know all of the criminal code. No one could know all of the relevant regulations. No one could know all of the relevant guidance documents and the like. It is really just a moral statement that we are going to hold people accountable in this regard. The problem is once the law grows tremendously in its size, which it has, uh, no one can know it all. So it doesn't make sense. There should be a mistake of law defense. And I've argued in many contexts that there should be. The problem with it coming up in this hypothetical, however, is this. Um, if you have a mistake of law defense, you have to decide what the elements are. And it seems to me that there should be two. One is that the conduct charged against a person was conduct that no reasonable person would have known to be unlawful. And secondly, uh, that the person, him or herself, did not know that this conduct was unlawful. Now, in the hypo you gave me, which the questioner asked about, uh, the second element would be satisfied. The person did not know that essentially a minor theft like this uh, was a crime. But any reasonable person would have known that what you're essentially doing is you know, taking, if you will, someone else's property. The question is whether or not, therefore, you have that person has consented to you doing it. 
That's a different question. Uh, the feral child uh, can be held to the standard of what a reasonable person would know is and it's not criminal. Uh, and therefore, it doesn't exactly raise the type of problem that you normally see where an official is alleged to have violated some regulation that only a legal expert would know about. Thanks, Paul. Um, well, that brings us to the end of the panel. I want to thank all three of you uh, for the excellent commentary and the hard work that you put into preparing um, and the quality of the articles, which were fantastic. Um, speaking of which, let's uh, all thank Professor Steve Laddick as well and congratulate him on, on his recent, uh, recently being named the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas. It's a shame that he couldn't be with us today, but we thank him for um, his wonderful article and we hope to see him again uh, as soon as possible. Um, I also want to thank the audience uh, for the really thoughtful and engaged questions. Uh, really made the panel more interesting for me and I'm sure for the rest of the panelists. Um, so thanks for that. And I hope you'll all return after 15 minutes um, where we're going to roll into panel three, potpourri. That will, take, that will start at 2.15. And with that, um, again, thank you, panelists, and we're done. <laughs>